close your eyes and imagine. Beaches soaked with nearly 20,000 years of history, the smell of salt hangs in the air and ocean waves crash on the shore between the jagged rocks where canoes rest and that are the telltale clue of people that live here. In the nearby forest, you hear villagers singing and beating native drums. Picture them dancing around the warm, bright campfires. Youth gather around the elderly as the stories of brave ancestors are passed to the next generation. On the edge of the shadows, the affair is watched by towering totem poles. How is it that one of the oldest surviving civilizations on earth is barely known past its own shores? Who is it that haunts the Pacific Northwest coastline? I'm Scott Parrish. Welcome to Dying to Eat the podcast that explores different cultures around the world and the relationship between death and food within them. Stay with us to the end for a recipe to inspire you to experience each culture a little more and a few good stories along the way. Long ago, the world was endless sky and seas that mirrored the heavens. There was a single reef that broke the water surface. All of the great beings lived on the reef with the greatest at the peak of the reef. All was soared over by the raven. Fly as it might, it couldn't find a place to land as every inch was claimed by the creatures below. The raven grew bored of seeing nothing except water and his wings grew tired, so he decided to visit the clouds. When he arrived, he found a great city. He entertained himself by playing cruel tricks on the people that lived there. The sky people grew tired of the raven and cast him back down into the sea. The raven floated on the waves for a while. Soon he became hum hungry. He spied two stones at the bottom of the ocean, so he dived down and he scooped them up with his beak. He bit a chunk from each and fused them together with his great powers. He cast the newly formed stone back into the ocean and it began to grow. As the rock grew past the surface of the water, trees, bushes, and grass began to grow on it. Now there were beautiful forests with plenty to eat, and when the raven had his fill, he laid on his back on the beach to relax. He began to feel lonely when he heard a sound nearby. He investigated and learned that the noise emanated from a great clamshell nearby. Curious, he decided to see what the singing was coming from. His confident, beautiful voice he thought would draw it out. And he was right. Small, flightless, two-legged creatures began to leave the shell and to listen more closely to the raven's song. Although he was a trickster and was known to sometimes be foolish and cruel, the raven felt responsible for the new creatures. He decided that he wanted to protect and shelter them. Unsurprisingly, he became bored after a while with the humans and considered putting them back in the shell. Instead, he took pity on them and resolved to help them until they could fend for themselves. He stole fire and fresh water from another great being. He stole the moon and the sun and the stars from their guardian which he hung in the sky. He taught them to catch delicious fish, and he watched over them. This is the story of the Hadai tribe of North America, or one version of it. It's the story of how their homeland was created. While most iterations were filled with humor and drama, what scientists have uncovered may be even more interesting. 13,000 so years ago, there was uh, an ice age, and it was close to being over. The waters off the coast of North America receded and created land bridges that expanded and connected small islands that dotted the area. Whenever I talk about a subject like this, it reminds me of when I lived in Alaska. 
We are actually discussing uh, one of the same areas that I've traveled. Even today, those areas are wild. They're filled with forest and fields, clear springs, and these majestic mountains. Definitely worth a visit if you ever get the chance. Now wait a minute, back to the story. This specific area that I'm telling you about today is known as the, and I believe that I'm pronouncing this right, Hecate Strait. And it's connected to a collection of islands called Haida Gwaii. These islands are off the coast of what's now modern-day Canada. And when the Earth Age was at its peak, there were all kinds of ice bridges and natural passages. One of these was called the Bering Strait. The Bering Strait connected Russian Siberia to North America. This is the same bridge that connected Haida Gwaii and some of the archaeological remains that are there suggested that the ancestors of this area migrated there about 20,000 years ago. With Haida Gwaii's cool, damp climate, the island became this home to rainforests filled with ancient trees like giant red cedars, spruces, and western hemlocks. Some of the oldest and largest trees in the world still exist there, and it's all because uh, there's not been wide-scale mining. Uh, wide-scale mining. There's not been wide-scale logging like there has been in a lot of other places. The canopy of this great forest formed... Uh, a shelter that nurtured the growth of many different flowers and shrubs, which have been medicinal in value. Haida have used them for millennia to treat disease and wounded. They also harvested some of these huge trees to make canoes. Because of the size and the durability of the trees that were used to make the canoes, the Haida were able to navigate waters with a greater ease than any of the other natives in the area. This meant that the Haida developed trade far faster and far better than a lot of the other tribes in their areas. And they were became very feared as being fierce fighters. They moved lightning quick in their enemy villages and their abilities in these areas are compared sometimes to the Vikings in the old world. By the way, I have a lot to tell you about Vikings. So make sure to look for that episode too. So south of Haida Gwaii, in the San Juan Islands of Puget Sound, the Lumi tribe tells stories of a haunted island by the same name. According to this legend, the Lumi tribe never actually lived on Lumi Island for fear of ghostly figures that were quickly impos- quick, impossibly quick and moved uh, through the fog without a sound. If you have ever visited this area south of Vancouver, British Columbia, you'll understand when you see the mist for yourself. This fog, it gets so thick that you're blinded. It's like having a thick blanket over you or something. From personal experience, eerie is the best word I can come up with. The canoes of the Haida were big enough to carry 50 or so soldiers that all rode in sync. And I can imagine the, the fear that they inspired. Death might even be more welcome than being captured because... Those that were captured were often either ransomed or forced into slavery. And the Haida, they're not known as uh, wasteful people. Their weapons were multi-purpose as well. In hand-to-hand combat, <laughs> in hand-to-hand combat, they tended to use the same daggers that they used in everyday hunting and foraging. One historical account tells about a medicine man that used this dagger to pin up his hair. When he was ready to fight, he would pull it out and his hair would cascade down around his shoulders. And one of the most infamous weapons in early Haida arsenal were also the uh, canoe breakers. 
These were basically two heavy stones that were tied together with ropes made out of cedar bark. Each stone weighed about 50 pounds. Now, side note, we have some followers over in Greece and Great Britain. For you guys on the metric system, that's about 23 kilos. These canoe breakers would be thrown into the enemy canoes, which didn't stand a chance against them. When the breakers would be pulled back by the thrower by the rope, and then they'd be reused again. The Hayda would go into battle in this armor made of bark that was really lightweight but very tough. It was tough enough that arrows couldn't pierce it, and later, when they were invading Europeans, the Europeans learned pretty quick that even a bullet couldn't penetrate the bark armor at point-blank range. Due to the frequent wars that they had, Haida had a lot of fortified sites as well. These forts usually included heavy trap doors, platforms, rolling log defenses, and palisades. A palisade is a wall or a fence that's made out of logs used for self-defense. So if you have this mental picture of an Old West outpost or a stockade, then, then you have an idea of what a palisade is. The platforms I mentioned a minute ago, they were used to roll boulders down on attackers. Considering how difficult the waters of the strait are that surround the island, that was a uh, barrier into itself. Unfortunately, no matter how great the Haida were at being warriors, they couldn't protect themselves against smallpox. When the Western world made contact in the 1800s, 90% of the population was wiped out by the disease. It marked an era that Haida have truly never recovered. While Haida are known for their interactions with other tribes and the Europeans, the relationship among their own people is possibly even more intriguing. The Haida live in villages like most Native Americans. They are further grouped into what are called moieties. These moieties are basically extended family. So you can compare them to, say, an English monarchy or the clans of feudal Japan. Traditionally, there are two, the eagle and the raven. Unlike the English monarchy among the same clan, a marriage among the same clan isn't allowed. The Haida are matrilineal, which means you belong to the clan that your mom does. Each group has different resources like hunting or fishing spots or in lodges. Uh, they also have their own particular myths, dances, and songs, and all of those are passed down from one generation to another. Moieties remain an important part of the Haida social structure, though with the creation of Canada's mandatory residential schools, the traditional Haida family has become more decentralized and they're more like what a nuclear family looks like now. While not a modern practice, when a young person used to hit puberty, the tradition was for the child to go on a vision quest. That meant leaving the village and wandering through the woods for a few days. A successful vision quest meant finding a spirit guide, whose job was basically like a life coach. Your spirit ghost was supposed to give you advice through life, unsolicited. I think my spirit guide's my brother, Chris. Just kidding, just kidding. So... When the child returns to the village, they throw a big party. People wear masks and they paint their faces and they listen to the kid's story. When those stories are most unique, the storytellers are often foretold to be leaders in the community. I kind of feel like that's how we choose our leaders in the States now. Tell me a big story. Get elected president. Huh. Huh. I don't know. 
Biggest part of Haida politics is potlatch. Potlatches are usually depicted as some kind of a religious ceremony or pre-game warm-up for a battle. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. To boil it down, a potlatch is a social form to set tribal policy. One of the most pure forms of democracy during during this meeting, the community, they discuss and decide everything that moves the group forward. This could be major issues like how to divide resources, or they could really even be minor ones like settling squabbles within families. Sometimes other tribes are invited to potlatches so that it's a forum to discuss disputes and trade. Good communication and goodwill is imperative when you consider they are living in a place where a fire or a raid or some other disaster could wipe out your village at any time. Speaking of goodwill, it was a tradition of the Haida to pay tribute and show goodwill to their allies. The two most common tokens were copper and slaves. Being that potlatches involved such important topics, the, meeting, the meetings took a lot of planning. Up to a year before meeting, the chief would have a feast with his council and they'd make a plan. If the two leaders couldn't meet in person for whatever reason, the inviting, the inviting chief would quietly send gifts over to the wealthier members of the other tribe. Then those people would respond in kind with greater gifts. You see, in that culture, it's bad form for you to ever ask for something without offering something back. Actually, that sounds like a pretty good life lesson to me. I don't know. So, now consider this. There's no harsh words or violence at the potlatches. Rivals would compete through displays of wealth. These displays of wealth were a way of, say, you know, it's like building street cred. And for some reason, if the, the loser would diminish in political value or political power, I guess. And uh, for some reason, the general Canadian opinion decided that potlatches were sinful in the 1800s and a federal law outlawed gatherings in, in 1883. It's kind of similar to what prohibition was in the United States. Potlatches continued to be quietly held with a blind eye turned by authorities unless they did something blatant. And then in 1951, there passed a law to repeal it. So effectively, nothing changed. Unlike all the activities and drama that flows through the life of the living, it's quite different when we start talking about the deceased. The Haida buried their dead in these large group pits. The bodies aren't even embalmed, so the pits have to be appropriate distance from the village. These burial pits were generally for the average villager, and but even after a couple of hundred years, or I should say though after a couple of hundred years of Christian influence, current burial is really more like what we do here in the West. More influential tribe members, now, you know, we're talking the shaman, the chief, and the warriors. They received a different burial to show respect for their position. Their bones were crushed with clubs, and they were put in these small wooden boxes. The box was then placed on top of a totem pole in front of their log house, or in front of their longhouse. The animals carved in the totem pole were believed to be guides into and through the spirit world. Sometimes, the box would be covered with this ceremony, by this memorial board that was attached to the top of the totem pole. On the board would be painted a crest and these memorial poles they were carved and they were known based on where they were placed. So a freestanding memorial pole would be in front of a house. A house frontal 
would exist as part of the front exterior of the house. In the carved interior were internal roof beams. Each told the story of the family and showed either the raven or the eagle that, ex that exemplified that uh, line of ancestry. Sometimes, shawls would, sometimes shamans wouldn't even be buried at all. Small grave houses were built in their honor, and the deceased holy man would be seated in the house on this lone chair, knees to chin. I kind of picture uh, Rodin's statue, the thinker. You know what I'm talking about? So burial was usually the end of hate of burial ceremonies, though it really wasn't the end of feasting. And since they didn't have this huge funeral feast, I'm going to tell you about potlatch feast instead. In preparation for the event, the hunters would amass as many seals, sea lions, salmon, cod, halibut, oysters, clams, crabs, deer, elk, everything they could kill. Eggs, goat's milk, nuts, berries, and mushrooms were always gathered. And if it was in season, caviar would be collected from the streams. Now they'd pound that into a paste and add it to some berries and they'd cook it into a cake. Roasted vegetables were seasoned with salmon oil. Speaking of salmon, that's this week's recipe. The Haida culture is amazing to me, and as it's my norm, I dove into the food that surrounds them, literally. The vegetables they harvest, the fish that they catch, the animals they hunt. The Haida are a center of this ever-moving horn of plenty. When they killed a lot of meat like that, when they killed a lot of animals, sometimes the meat would be roasted and used during pot latches and rest of the time, or let's call it the other half, it would be added to smokehouses so that it would be available during leaner times. You see, the Haida weren't farmers, but you know what? They didn't have to be. Herbs and vegetable grew wild and they grew plentifully. All of these, all of this said, they do, even to today though, remain prolific fishermen. This connection to the land really holds my fascination. I, I, there's just no two ways about it. For this reason, I chose a recipe. While it's time consuming, it can be replicated fairly easily. I think it represents and shows reverence to Haida. In the end, I can tell you the salmon I prepared during my test cook for this episode, it probably weighed about three pounds. My Florida family devoured it in all of 15 minutes. I've said it many times. You want to give me a compliment? Give me back an empty plate. Today, I'm going to tell you how to smoke salmon, and it's surprisingly simple if you've never done it. In fact, today is a twofer. Complimenting the salmon, I'm going to teach you how to make sweet potato fritters. Now you may ask, Scott, did Haida natives really make sweet potato fritters? Maybe not, though potatoes did grow in that area of the country. Regardless, you should already know if you're a subscriber that I like to add my own flair. Still, as usual, this is a recipe that I've tried to develop so cooks of all levels could participate. For the smoked salmon, the grocery list is pretty short. Pick out a salmon filet about three to five pounds. That's pretty common in grocery stores here in the U.S. You need a half a gallon of cold water. Normally what I do is I just put a pitcher of cold water in the fridge until I'm ready to use it. You'll need two cups of brown sugar, two-thirds cup kosher salt, enough olive oil to coat your fish, and a half cup honey. Make sure you have a non-metallic container big enough to hold the fish without having to fold the filet. In a large bowl, mix your water, sugar, and salt. Together, stir it until it's well incorporated. Sugar, that'll melt really easily. The salt, it may take some more stirring. 
So if you get stuck on the salt, I want you to use this advanced technique called, what the hell, just move on. Okay, so pour enough of your brine to cover the bottom of your container. Then place your fish skin side up and cover with the remaining brine. Place your brine fish in the fridge for at least 10 hours. And if you want to go overnight, that's fine too. When you remove the fish from the refrigerator the next day, take it out of the brine and lay it on a clean countertop. And then blot with a towel until you get as much liquid off the meat as you can. Many people know and herald me for my barbecue. I am a Kansas City barbecue judge, and I am a member of the world-famous Cotton Picking Porkers. Hey guys, hope you enjoy this shout-out. The point here is that to smoke a salmon, you need good smoke. If you own one of those popular smokers that are sold today, great. There's some fantastic ones out there. If not, and you're using your backyard grill, we still got this covered. I suggest that you use a wood charcoal mix, and my favorite... Uh, woods for this would probably be peach, cherry, and apple. So get your fire going using your charcoal at one end of your grill. So follow what I'm saying. When you cook your fish, it's not going to be over direct fire. After your charcoal gets to that uh, hot coal stage, throw a little wood on the top and you should have, a, you should have smoke right then. Place your fish skin side down and close the top. What you're looking for temperature-wise is to hold about 150 degrees Fahrenheit, or I'm trying to keep up with you guys over in Europe, 65 degrees Celsius. Man, I'm learning a lot of math there. I don't know if I can keep up with that or not. Okay, so once everything is cooking, it's time to move on to the fritters. As far as your salmon goes, once an hour, you can baste it with honey. If you need a little bit more smoke, you can throw on some more wood. But there's no reason to, to go over there and open the front of the grill because, or the smoker. Because remember, if you're, if you're looking, you're not cooking. So let your fish smoke for about four, four and a half hours. If you're looking at internal temp for you more advanced cooks, we're looking for about 165 degrees Fahrenheit. So let's move on to the sweet potato fritters. You need two pounds of peeled sweet potatoes, one medium onion, three cloves of fresh garlic, three eggs, a tablespoon of smoked paprika, a tablespoon of salt, half a tablespoon of black pepper, 12 ounces of sour cream, plenty of olive oil, and some chopped chives. Now comes the work. Grate your potatoes and your onion. Chop your garlic into a fine paste or run it through a garlic press. Now stick with me here. Place all three ingredients in a clean kitchen towel. And work in sections if you want, just do a little bit at a time. You're going to twist this towel as tightly as you can to remove as much liquid as possible. I know that sounds crazy, but, but it works. Alright, so combine your freshly dried ingredients, your eggs, your paprika, salt and pepper, all into a large bowl and mix it well. Then fill a pan with olive oil about a half an inch thick and get it up to a medium high heat. I know when the oil's ready because normally what I do is I'll take a little piece of potato and throw it in the in the oil and if bubbles form around the edge then you know it's hot enough. Now systematically pat out your fritters about an inch thick and about four inches in diameter. Place them in the hot oil and cook for three minutes or maybe four and then flip them over. Now as you need more, more oil just add a little bit more and once they're cooked once they're cooked, 
Place them on a plate so that they'll drain over on the side. When you're ready to assemble each fritter, then take some salmon, place it on top of the fritter, top that with sour cream, and then sprinkle with chives. It's absolutely delicious, and let me tell you, this dish will fit into a formal dinner party or a family weekend at home. It's a good all-around recipe to have in your having your uh, having your <laughs> repertoire. There's a word in there somewhere. It's a good recipe to have in your repertoire. I'm Scott Parrish. <laughs> I'm your host, Scott Parrish, and it's been Dying to Eat, the podcast that shares history, burial rituals, and good things to eat. Who would have guessed that all that goes together? I hope you like what you've heard. We would not exist without you listeners. Please help by liking and subscribing, and please tell your friends. Listen for us on your favorite podcast platform, and until next week, stay lively.